I hope that that might be a moment, you know, like you might take that, that snapshot in your brain to remember something, that you might be able to post some stickers looking back in your life to saying God was here. God was here. He's in all of it, right? It's not like he was there and then he walked. This is not footprints in the sand and you look back and he was carrying you. Like he's with you the whole time. He's not left us. Um, but yet there are moments where we look back and recognize even more the evidence of his grace there. So um, I hope you'll think about that and even share that with other people. Like as you do, that's a part of our growing together is to hear that. Uh, I want to step into and press into our sermon for today. Uh, if you're looking, we've been walking through um, Acts. Chapter 6 was the shortest uh, chapter we've gone through. Chapter 7 is the longest chapter we've been there. Uh, and so um, the great thing is, though it is long, uh, it gives a little bit about what happens when uh, a, pa- a preacher gets up there. Um, he can just keep on going. We're not going to go verse by verse through Stephen's speech, uh, all 53 verses of it, uh, or uh, I guess it's like 48 with like 50 uh, a few few verses after, you know, 53 verses of his speech. But um, I do want us to like connect in today with what's going on, what's been happening in Acts as we think about it. We're to walk away today, uh, overall, look back on Acts. We want to think about the work of the Holy Spirit that is happening throughout all of this, right? This is the place that where God has made himself known. The Holy Spirit has been there. The church has been there. The body of believers joined together, united and working. Think about how many, time we, how many times we've read about the disciples, the apostles. Like, yes, we've read about Peter and John, and now we're going to hear about Stephen. But there's a lot of broad talking about them, right? The meaning that they are doing stuff together. Uh, are there a few guys leading out in that? Yes, absolutely. But the the church is beginning to go out and it's not uh, just these guys and, and a few other people. It is them all together. And so as we look at this, last week we looked at Acts chapter 6 and we see this picture happening in Acts chapter 6 of um, the struggle, the need. Last week we talked about the need of uh, creating deacons inside of there to serve the church, to care for the needs in there, uh, that God doesn't want to see division and disunity. Uh, and so as we look at that, we start to see this picture of uh, these, these, the description in Acts chapter 6. They were full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, right? This is also a picture of Stephen, a, a, a description of him. Verse 8 says he was full of grace and power. Uh, verse 10 says uh, be, maybe even because of these things, because if he was full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, uh, that in verse 10 it says that they, his opponents of chapter, in chapter 6 couldn't resist the wisdom with which he spoke, sorry, uh, with the wisdom with which he spoke. And even after he's arrested, verse 15 says, his face was like that of an angel he was, uh, as he was accused in court, right? That's not usually said about people who are accused of court. They look like angels, right? Usually what happens when someone goes to court is they look guilty, right? But this is the picture of the indwelling spirit working in Stephen, which is a picture of what's going on in the body. They're all filled with the Spirit. Uh, They are uh, even looking different, right? So in spite of all this, or maybe because of even all of the way he was, right? Maybe this is even an example for us. When we follow Jesus, um, some people are drawn to that. They look at that. They're amazed by that. And then some people look at it and are repelled by it. 
They are angered by it. And that's what happens in chapter 6, verse 14. It says, where they heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will, and they begin to create uh, false charges against him, that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us, all right? And um, so early in verse 11, he had been accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So we see Stephen in this picture uh, coming people see God at work and they see him filled with the Holy Spirit, what do they do? They, they begin to um, lash out accusations against him. This is not a good guy. He's speaking blasphemy. He's speaking words against God. He's against Moses. He's against our customs. He's against God. He's against his temple. I mean, he's putting everything he can against him, right? This man who's there, he's been called a deacon so he could serve. A man known for his service is now being called out and saying, no, this guy really is about just opposing Moses and his customs, opposing God and opposing his temple. So in Acts chapter 7, the high priest gives Stephen a chance to defend himself. He says, is this so? Is this true of what they say about you? And he asks Stephen, and Stephen then does a very strange thing. He goes into the story, a condensed version of the history of Israel. Like for us, we might look at this as we've talked about the story of God, right? We see the story of God in, in the ark, uh, that it starts with creation and fall and then the promise, then Jesus being the redemption and, and then the church coming in and then finally the ultimate restoration. Right? But he begins into the story about this is who we are. He's attaching them to the identities of all of what they've become and where they've come from. He starts with Abraham at the beginning, verses 1 through 8. And then verses 9 through 16 of chapter 7, he dwells on Joseph and on how the Israelites came to Egypt. So he's going back and saying, this is who we are. This is where we've come from. Remember these stories. What do you think happens when they begin to remember these stories? He goes on uh, in chapter seven, or verses 17 through 44. He spends a long time on Moses. And then he closes with a brief reference to Joshua, David, and Solomon in verses 55 uh, through, or 45 through 50. So you, you see this story being laid out. Imagine that's there because what he's wanting them to do is go back and remember what happens in those stories. What do we know in all those stories? What do we know? What is very similar in Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon? Is that imperfect people are, are empowered by God to do amazing things and God's people, what happens to throughout the stories, every one of those stories, God's people continue to rebel against him, right? So he's got men, women called apart for him. They do amazing things empowered by the spirit of God, but yet God's people, I mean, though deliverance and, and promise after promise being fulfilled, they continue to rebel against God. That's what Stephen's wanting to highlight in this speech in this sermon this is defense that he has here and then finally he draws his conclusions from his, uh, from this history and he, he 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 concludes it this way probably not the way I would have concluded all of this to point out to the people that are accusing him of blaspheme uh, which is a crime punishable by death but he says in Acts chapter 7 51 through 53 you stiff-necked people um, circumcised in the heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they kills those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received uh, the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
So again, just like Jesus did, his harshest words are for those who are trying to quote unquote uphold the law. Right? They're trying to, again, mainly man-made laws and this are, are the, the higher the high the raising of their own laws and rules uh, to kind of go along with um, what Jesus or what God had given them. And so he he is calling them out. His call to them is you're a stiff-necked people. Um, so if they weren't already really angry with him, um, the in this, like, I think Stephen even knows where he's going. I want to push them to see, will they do this? Think back to Gamaliel in chapter 5. We talked about this. Gamaliel told the this, this same council of people, hey, listen, don't just go kill them, right? Because if we kill them, then their people scatter. No big deal. Like, just endure it. Let it go. But if it's of God, you're going to fight this and it's not going to work. It's going to keep, it's going to last. And Stephen knows this is a work of God. And it's almost like Paul who says, for me to live as Christ, for me to die as gain. Stephen's like, I don't have anything to lose here. I'm going to tell you the unadulterated truth. You're going to get it all, whether you like it or not. And here's that truth. You're stiff-necked people. You're just like your parents, the parents before them, uncircumcised in your ears and your hearts. You don't even do it. You resist the Holy Spirit. That's his description of them. And again, I don't think this is to incite their rage. What it is is to say, there's a real thing. Let me put the line in the sand and tell you this is what this is about. Because if you kill me, I'm going to be okay. He knows what the charge of blasphemy means. It means death. But if you hear this, if this gets through your head, it's going to change your life. So one way or the other, either I die and I go to be with Jesus, or you die to yourself and you become alive in Jesus. One of the two happens out of this message. It's a pretty impactful speech. So what was Stephen's defense through all of this? Why does he have to go through this whole big story? What's his defense? Uh, He had been charged with speaking against Moses, the law, and against God and the temple. Again, there's really no higher crimes for the Jews. Here's another picture of this. Remember, Stephen is one of the Hellenist Jews, right? So he's not from Israel. He has lived his life outside of Jerusalem, outside of there. He's coming in, speaking some difference. So there's even some of them there. This is that picture of the reality. As the gospel goes out, the further it goes out, it's not going to look just like us. It's going to look and act differently. And they don't like that. So his defense is that history proves uh, the opposite. It's Israel as a people that have been stiff in their neck against God and resisted the Holy Spirit. They persecuted the prophets of God. They killed Jesus, the Son of God. And now they're about to kill a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. That's the way he's described by others. That's what others see in him. He's full of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. They're the ones who need to give account, not Stephen. Why are you treating this disciple of Jesus this way, this Son of God this way? So the whole purpose of this defense is to show them, to put them in the story. I think it's good for us to put ourselves in the story, right? He's putting them in this grand narrative. This is what God's been doing, and this is how we as God's people have been messing it up and have walking against God's ways, and this is you. You're the same. You're just like God's people. You're just like Israel leading up to this. So what two ways might 
uh, Stephen's message speak to us. We need to let this message speak to us. As we read it, we look at it and we go, okay, that's not me, but no, it, it is. He says that Israel always resists the Holy Spirit. This means first that God had been working for Israel again and again and again with repeated acts of mercy and patience and long-suffering throughout their history. It means secondly that they, he had repeatedly hard, uh, they had repeatedly hardened their hearts and stiffened their necks and stop their ears to the work of God. We see it over and over again. God works through his people. We see it over and over again. God's people say, no, I want to go my own way. I want to do it my own way. That's the only way for that to happen, right? We, you've seen this. If you're a parent, you, you, you've been there. If you're a kid to your parents, right? They'd say, you're going to do something, and there's that immediate reaction of like, oh, am I going to do that or am I not, right? It's the standoff. And it's that reality, I'm getting ready for a fight. So he's saying, listen, you guys with stiff necks, you guys, you, you people that have hardened your hearts against him, you're setting your ways against God. Now that seems crazy, right? Uh, when Reagan was little, I can share this story. Uh, she was not ever afraid of me. She would stare right at me and be like, I'm not doing it. Like to say yes, sir, or no, sir, not gonna happen. And she would be like, no. I don't, I'm not gonna do it. That seems crazy to me. Because it's little Reagan, that's not Reagan now, it's little Reagan, he's looking up at me, no, I'm not gonna do it. But yet that, that, as crazy as that might seem for Reagan to do to me, who has no ability to win whatever we're gonna get into, right? I can outlast it, I'm meaner, I'm tougher, I'm louder, I'm bigger, I'm all the things, right? It's the same thing that we do every time we go against the, uh, that resisting the Holy Spirit, that nudge of the Holy Spirit. Maybe have we gotten better at resisting the Holy Spirit than we have gotten at listening to the Holy Spirit or obeying the Holy Spirit. So think about this in two ways today. You could see this message from, from him. as One, as encouragement. He wants us to be encouraged by the story of his patience and long-suffering with the rebellious people. Uh, we read it in Psalm 103, that comes from Exodus 34, six through seven, that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and forgives iniquity and transgressions and sin. That's who God is, he does that. He continually does that. So it's encouragement to us that God, like our, our uh, stiff-neckedness, our, our ability to fight God, he is not going like, sorry, I'm not gonna deal with you anymore. I'm done dealing with you. He's not eager to punish. He is eager to forgive and to move on with repentant and humble people. But the second part is a warning. So encouragement and then a warning. He wants us to be warned that there is an end to his patience. There is a resistance to the Holy Spirit that goes so long and so far that God hands a person over to the power of their sin. You see it in verse 42, God turned and gave them the uh, over to the worship of the host of heaven. So the second way that God wants to minister us today is to awaken us to this awesome truth that we can resist, we can resist him so long and want other things so much more than we want him that he finally turns away, he stops convicting, he stops giving the gracious feelings and guilt and, and hands us over entirely to our sin. Think of this in Romans chapter one, right? Romans 1, 24 uh, through 26, 
or 24 and 25, 26 say this, therefore God gave them up to their lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creator rather than, uh, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, it says in verse 26 and then also in verse 28, for this reason God gave them up to be dishonorable, to the dishonorable passions, in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is that picture. God is willing to do that. If we want to continue to go, God is, this is hard to even hear because he loves us and he loves us so much that he wants us to come and he's going to pursue us. But there's a point when we, where does that line come? I don't know. I don't want to find out. When I just keep ignoring God, ignoring God, ignoring God, and then finally he's like, all right, is that what you want? Then that's what you can have. But I know we've seen it, right? We've all seen people who've done that. Who've pressed to see, can, how far can I push God? How far can I keep God away from us? Both of these are words of grace. Remember that both the promises of God's patience as well as the warning of his judgments are words of grace. We need both of them, right? I don't, I don't use the, the, the um, judgment as the way to get me into action. But I hope it does if I ever get there. I hope someone loves me enough to, if I were to ever fall down a trail of sin that I want to, I'm choosing sin over, over God, that someone would say, Randy, there's some day that it's going to come to you that you might not be able to get out of this because you, not that God wouldn't take you back, but he's not going to be there to convict your heart anymore. He's willing to let you go if that's what you want. And they're very relevant for us in this moment. I want to take a few moments to look at these high points in Israel's stories and how, um, and how he was using them, Stephen was using them in this sermon. So first, in choosing Abraham, he begins in the middle of verse 2 of chapter 7. I'm, they're not going to be up on the screen because I'm going to kind of go through these quickly, but we'll see some of these ways that he's been at work. In verse 2, he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Depart from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I'll show you. According to verse 4, Abraham makes it halfway to the promised land and settles in Haran. But God is merciful and does, not, uh, does more than merely tell Abraham to go on to the promised land. He actually moves him, exerts some special power on Abraham. Verse 4b says, Then after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So God did something there. So God's mercy begins with choosing Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth to inherit the promised land. And then God's patience begins by giving Abraham an extra hard push to get all the way to the promised land when he had settled halfway there in Haran. See how God works in that? God loves us so much, but yet willing to push, willing to work with us. Joseph's arrival in Egypt. Next uh, look at Joseph, one of Abraham's great-grandsons. He comes to Egypt from the promised land. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into, into, uh, into Egypt. So there, another instance of resisting uh, the will of God, they were jealous that God was speaking to them through Joseph and even implying that they might someday honor Joseph as their superior. But then, verses 9 
and 10 say, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him over a favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt. In other words, in their jealousy and resistance to the patriarchs, of the patriarchs, God was patient and merciful and kept on working for their deliverance, right? Joseph's brothers are the one that threw him down there, right? That sent him into slavery, that let all this bad things happen. And what does Joseph end up saying later, right? What you intended for bad, God used for good. They rejected God's word and Joseph's dream, but God, instead of judging them, used the very sin to bring rescue to them when they ran out of the food, of food and had come to begging to Egypt for their ha- and their hated brother. The raising up of Moses, the next illustration, God raises him up as a deliverer for the oppressed people in Egypt. But when Moses makes his first appearance to help his people, they resist him, as did Joseph, right? Moses even anticipated it, right? He's like, I'm going to go there, and they're going to go like, who are you? I wonder if Moses, there's a part of it like, say, I told you, God, like, this is what is going to happen. Verse 26, he tries to break up a fight between true Israelites. Men, you are brethren. Why do you fight among your, each other? But verse 27 says, the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? So they reject their deliverer as they did with Joseph and as they will do with Jesus. And he flees into exile into the land of Midian. But there's God's patience and mercy. Move him to send Moses back again. Verse 34 out of chapter 7. I have surely seen the ill treatment of my people that are in Egypt and heard their groaning and I've come uh, down to deliver them. uh, And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So in verse 36, we see Moses, the rejected ruler and deliverer, saving the people, right? He's the one they didn't want here. Who are you? You're not in charge of me. You don't, you don't have anything to tell me what to do. Then God sends him back there. He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Another instance in this story, the golden calf in the wilderness wanings. But in spite of all of the patience, verses 39 and 41 say, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside in their hearts. They turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what he has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their hands. For many of them, God's patience had come to an end, right? In verse 42 says, God turned and gave them over to the worship the host of heaven. In other words, since they rejected the true worship of God and they want idols made with their own hands, God gives them up to that reality behind all idols, namely demons, right? So verse 43 says, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star God of Raphon. He's saying, listen, if you want those things, you want idols, I'll let you have idols. Here they are. Enjoy them for all that they will give you. For many of them, I'm sorry, but even then God did not cease to show mercy to all of them. In verse 45, he says that the Israelites disposed the nation which God thrust out before our fathers so that even after the idolatry in the wilderness, God fought for Israel and gave them the promised land. You see this over and over and over again. These pictures, Stephen is saying, listen, it's not just you, but it's been, this is who we are. God wants to redeem that. He wants to redeem that. Lastly, Stephen gets to the point of the temple, the accusation against him that he's going to tear down the temple. He points out that Solomon built God a house in verse 47. 
that the temple they prized so dearly and that Jesus said he would destroy and build again in three days. And he says in verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made of, with hands. What does this remind us of, right? The tongues of fire coming over the disciples, that the Spirit of God is coming to dwell in his people. When Jesus said, I'm going to tear down the temple, what he was really saying is, this building's not going to matter anymore. I'm going to come and be and dwell. God's going to dwell in something not made by hands. Who is that? That is us. He's going to come and indwell us with his Holy Spirit. And so what you think is blasphemy against the temple is really the truth of the matter that God is doing something to bring us into relationship with him, to have his presence always and at all times. What these verses are reminding them of is that they got their joy from what they could achieve and not from God. And especially not from a God so free and so great and so sovereign and so self-sufficient that he gets all the credit for everything good and won't let himself be limited to or controlled by anybody's man-made temple. God's not bound by only being able to be in a temple, right? Not, he's not just in the tabernacle in the desert. He's with us right now and he can change us and he calls us into the world around him to live just as he has called us to live. When Jesus said he would just, um, so far, two messages that God wants us to hear, as we've talked about. This morning, God wants us to hear, one is that he is, a, is, a, is God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, showing faithfulness to thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He does not turn from us or stop pursuing us because we have sinned once or twice or 10 times or 70 times or 70 times, seven times. If you can still repent, he is still pursuing you. The other message from this morning is a merciful warning. Don't get your fulfillment from the works of your hands or from the achievement or from your own strength right? Will I rejoice in God and in his truth and in his mercy reflected imperfectly here? Or will I rejoice in the work of my hands and in my mind? Will I do what I want to do? Basically is what it's looking like. Yes, you can go to do it on your own. You can go be your own, like go your own way. Yes. Will God receive you back like the prodigal son? Absolutely. But also no, we're taking steps. Not that it won't outrun us. Not that his grace will end for us but he's willing to give us what we're wanting. You want a golden calf? He'll give you the golden calf. Let you have that golden calf and everything that gives you. Whatever sin is promising you or you feel like you're getting from that sin, you'll get the reward of that and that will be it and it's over. Or will you choose and repent and realize that's not the end result I want. That's not what I'm hoping for and need and what I'm boasting for in my life. Will we think church is a place or is keeping laws or whatever we have turned our golden calf into? He ends uh, in his argument, Acts 7, 49, he says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? What place, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? God's even saying, listen, yes, these this place, this tabernacle that I told you to build and this, temp, uh, this temple that you've made for me, they're all great things, but I'm not, I'm not bound by that. 
Rather, may the work of our hands and the places we worship and whatever we do lead us to, uh, lead us to rejoice in the God of glory, from whom and through whom and to whom all things are made. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Romans 11, 36. That that would be the goal of our, our lives. What, what Stephen is wanting these people to see, he's like, it's basically like, hey, here's your warning. You are the stiff-necked people. You can change. If you don't change, God will let you get what you're wanting. If you don't want to repent, if you don't want to turn to him. And this is how that story ends. We know it in verse 55. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. Wasn't what I think Stephen was hoping for. I, I, I think Stephen's prayer, probably different than Jonah's, was like, he's not going to save these people. Maybe this is the only way to save them, is to be as blunt as we can, to say the blunt, hard, honest truth. But they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped up their ears and rushed together at him. They began, it enraged them so much they couldn't even imagine him saying that he could see God and that Jesus was seated next to him. They flew into a rage after him and began to beat him right there. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. The imagery of Jesus, right? So much of this in Stephen's life. So much of this in Stephen's death. He knew that his message, for some, the sweet aroma of life. For others, the stench of death. What this was meaning to these people, what it will mean for us, right? So these Pharisees are on both sides of our life. The Pharisee that's saying, hey, you've got to follow the rule of God this way and it must look like this. And if you're not like this, you're not good. And you've got to earn your way to heaven. And then there's the Pharisee on the other side that says, God doesn't matter at all. And what you're trying to say about God is nothing. And you can't have that belief over here. You can't let your belief impact my life at all. In fact, you can't say that what I'm doing is even wrong. Right? It goes both sides of this argument. Because they both want to do the same thing. They don't like the truth of the gospel that says there's someone other than you that's in charge of your life. That there is a God out there who is the creator over all things and he sustains all things and in him all things roll together. He is the one we serve. He's the one that created all this. He's the one we get to experience this life through. Nothing happens apart from him. So realize that as, we, as you walk out of here with this message of the gospel to take out there, that there is a God that loves you, and yes, God will give you exactly what you're asking for. As I think through the kind of ending of this uh, series this summer, what happens, we see again a, a foretelling of what's about to happen in chapter 8 and beyond. Um, they lay their cloaks at the feet of Saul, 
Saul as the leader then of the persecution against uh, the, the followers of Jesus. So much so, it gets so bad that they cannot even stay in Jerusalem anymore and they begin to spread all over the world to get away from it because they're fearing their death and what it ultimately does is it spreads the gospel, right? What they think is going to end it does the exact opposite. Isn't that beautiful how God works? So can I tell you that even today, as you're thinking about sharing the truth of Jesus with somebody, what they think might try to end you sharing that, right? What they might think is trying to shame your reputation or ruin your uh, life or ruin your, um, uh, your witness can actually be the very thing that God uses for his glory to bring others to him, right? That's the same for the sin in our life, right? Our stories, God's redeemed them. They're not something to be ashamed of. They're something that he is redeemed. So with those two things and thinking about this encouragement, four things, uh, quick, there's uh, maybe five things. I think there's one last screen there, Ren. Five things I want you to think of as we take back uh, Acts all through the summer. Um, is there one more screen at the end of the Acts, the next one? So these five things here. Nothing happens apart from the Spirit. Right? We just heard that they were resisting the Holy Spirit. I feel like you're in one or two camps. You're either resisting the Spirit or you're saying, Spirit, I want all of you. I think there's a lot of times we've kind of got our hand, we've stiff-arming the Holy Spirit and saying, I just want you when I need like the powerful and the good stuff. I don't want you when it's interfering with what I want in life. We must recognize that nothing happens in our life as believers apart from the Spirit at work in us. We want that, we want to be dependent on that. Nothing happens apart from the Spirit. The, the next thing I want to encourage us to walk into this is praying for our people and uh, your people in our city. Your people are the people that God's put in your life. Who has God put in your life? Do you have people that you are praying for regularly to come to faith? That you have opportunities to share the gospel, right? Tomorrow is our day to pray for our city. Uh, the 22nd, uh, the fourth Monday of the month, we pray for our city. We ask God to, to do what only he can do right? Remember the importance of prayer. So these are the, these five things are really the things we see throughout Acts, right? Nothing happens apart from the Spirit. Acts 1, Acts 2, we see them living this out, right? I've got this upside down prayer, uh, being around the table, sharing fellowship, communion, and then commitment to God's Word. But this is the reality for that. Uh, there's several uh, opportunities for you to pray for people. There's the Bless Every Home app. You can sign up, put your address in. You can pick houses around where you live and just pray for the people that are around you. That's an active thing. That's not inactive. That's actually an active thing to pray and ask God to do something. It has a little prayer. It can show up in your email box. It can show up on your app in the morning. Re, uh, um, uh, pray that prayer for those five or six or eight people, however many you choose. Great way to do that. And then this list of people. The second, uh, the third thing there, make plans to get around the table with people, right? We come out of this season of, I love last night, Allison's neighbors did a progressive dinner. Like that's a great way, right? To build relationship. Let's go from house to house to house. Let's see how they, like God wants, God does so much around meals around the table, right? How are you going to use your table, your house this season to be a blessing to other people? Who are you sharing your table with? Who are your meals with? Again, think about Jesus, the people he ate with. There's not all the perfect people. There's not everybody had everything all figured out. It was the sinners. 
The next thing, communion with God and others. Are you being with Jesus? Right? We've talked about this. We'll continue harping this. Are you being with Jesus? Do you have time in your day? Is there time where you're just starting your day with him? Maybe before you touch the screen. I just saw some statistics the other day. Like I think it was uh, 20 years ago, uh, people were surveyed. What's the first thing you do when you get out of bed? 95% of them was go to the bathroom. You ask people now, what's the first thing you do when you get out of bed? So you check your phone, check email. I mean, it was like, bathroom wasn't even on the list. Go to the bathroom was not even on the list of seven different things. How crazy is that? 20 years ago, the first thing you do when you get out of bed, go to the bathroom. Like, what else am I gonna do? Now it's like, check, I mean, I, so I say that, again, not to press guilt, but to be the reminder, what's the first thing you're doing? What are you setting yourself up for, for the day? Start with Jesus, start your day with Jesus, be reminded of Jesus, and then be committed to God's word. Do you have a plan to be in God's word? If you need help with a plan, that's what your MCs and DNAs, that's what I'm here for, to help you with the plan. How do you read your Bible? What does that look like for you? Start with that. Ask, share it with other people. As we take away this, as we close this time in, in Acts, I hope that these are, are, are action steps that you can walk through and recognizing, like, am I living fully connected to the Holy Spirit? Am I praying for my people in our city? Am I making plans to be around the table with other people? Am I committed to communion with God and with others and committed to God's word? I pray that we might, I, I pray that none of us uh, have to be martyred for our faith so that God would use that so other people might come. But I pray that we would die to ourselves in the fact that we would get, we would lay our fear and our worry and our apprehensions in the areas where we're resisting the spirit before Jesus, that we might be able to experience his fullness of love. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, thank you again for um, this, this series through Acts. Thank you for the life of a brother, Stephen, who, was, who knew full well what he was saying and where he was going as he shared the realities of your goodness and grace to love a stiff-necked people who constantly turn our backs on you. And thank you for the reminder that, some, that God, you will give us what we want. Even if that means it's not good for us. So I pray that we are not resisting the Holy Spirit, but we are embracing the Holy Spirit. That in that embrace of the Holy Spirit, we find um, more communion with you. You meet us right where we're at. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.